Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Letson. Hi, Sharice. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's it's near the end of the week when we're recording this, and it's it's pay week, so I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, it's a little gray out there today, a little bit of rain, but I think we feel good going into the weekend. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. How are you? I'm very good. Yeah, I'm recovering from the election. It was a, it was a busy period with that snap election and uh, the campaign, you know, compressed into, you know, three or four weeks. Yeah, it was it was a lot for sure. And we were definitely really busy here over at home office uh, getting those election episodes out. Yeah, definitely. We did decide to take that pivot into interviewing those leaders, uh, but I think we had some, you know, really did good discussions with all of them on, uh, you know, economic issues and and other issues that were coming up in the campaign. I really enjoyed them. Yeah, no, and I it was uh, it seems like uh, it was very well received by uh, by listeners. So that's awesome. So. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, we're, we are pivoting back into uh, business this week with Huddle. Um, there's a little bit of politics, I have to admit, but I just a little bit, Sharice. Uh, okay, okay. I think we'll allow it. We have to talk about the results, right? Like, Yeah, we definitely do. Yeah. And so who I'm talking to this week, I'm talking to uh, Donald Savoie, and he's uh, at the University of Moncton. And uh, he's, you know, uh, a longtime sort of leading thinker on politics and business in New Brunswick um, and in Atlantic Canada. Uh, you know, he's written you know, books about the, you know, the Atlantic Canadian economy. He's written a book on Harrison McCain. And uh, so Sharice, you know, I originally, um, we're going to talk about the new book that he's just put out, uh, but having him on the show in the wake of the election, uh, I couldn't help talking uh, a little bit of politics with him and getting his insights on the campaign, uh, and uh, and actually, to tell you the truth, the conversation ends up uh, bleeding into the into the book itself because the book itself is about uh, business, but it's also uh, talks about sort of political and econ- economic themes that came up in in the election itself. Um, and uh, so, the book, which I was really excited, I actually didn't know the book was coming out, and uh, my uncle had a copy of it. And the book is called "Thanks for the Business," and uh, it's a book on Casey Irving, Arthur Irving. And the story of Irving Oil, and uh, my uh, my actually it was my wife Janet's uncle, and uh, he hauled the book out and he said, "Have you seen this yet?" And I hadn't. It would totally surprised me, and I was kind of eyeing it, uh, you know, covetously. Sharice was looking <laughs> at this book, and I think he saw the look in my eye, and he said, "How about you read it first? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "I yeah." <laughs> so uh, I, you know, I, I very politely said, uh, "I'll get that back to you soon." Um, so I, you know, I've spent the last uh, few weeks and and throughout the election campaign uh, reading reading this book, and it was actually really interesting reading it through uh, reading it throughout the campaign um, because uh, you know the themes in in the book were you know, definitely echoed in the campaign, and and obviously the you know the Irving still loom very large in in, in the maritime economy. Mm. Um, and I was, I was actually teasing Donald. I was saying, you know, I felt like we were having this extended chat while I was reading this book uh, all the way throughout the campaign. Um, so I'll get back to my uh, my uh, wife Janet's uh, uncle soon. Now that I've finished it and I've had my conversation with Donald. Uh, so, but to you know, just to briefly intro the political discussion that we had. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, coming out of this campaign, you know, there's going to be renewed conversation about where we take the economy from here. And, and Blaine Higgs has his majority government. Uh, so I talked to uh, Donald about that. 
uh, you know, and I also touched, uh, talked with him briefly about, you know, we saw another uh, result, Sharice, that, that very clearly separates uh, the northern Francophone part of the province from the, you know, the southern, largely Anglo part, where we mm-hmm. saw, you know, a strong liberal vote up north. Yeah. And we saw a strong Anglo vote down south. And, um, and, you know, that's something that we obviously need to address going forward. And it was immediately discussion during the campaign. And, and uh, you know, Donald has some very uh, insightful things to say about how we can bridge that very obvious divide. Mm. No, that'll be interesting to, interesting to hear. It sounds like it's going to be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> No, for sure. And, uh, you know, and one of the reasons why, you know, I really was interested in this book in particular, uh, you know, and I'll leave most of the conversation to, you know, obviously our conversation, but just to, to preface it a, a little bit, um, you know, KC is this, uh, you know, very large figure in, in New Brunswick business and, uh, and politics as well. You know, we've, you know, we've, the conversation always drifts to that, to that family when it comes to the economy and the province. And uh, I think because, Therese, it's, it's grown so large over, you know, over the generations, it's this, you know, large sprawling business empire now that, uh, you know, includes, now includes, you know, very, actually very, three very based, distinct uh, divisions in, in the family. Um, you know, you have Irving Oil that's operated by, you know, Arthur Irving's family. You have uh, JDI and the forestry business that's operated by JK's side. Uh, and then you have, you know, the Jack Irving family and, and the companies that they, that they run around, you know, construction, real estate and Acadia, Acadia Broadcasting. And actually they're also uh, a majority owner in, in Huddle. Um, they all operate very distinctly, mm. uh, but, but the family roots is, is KC. Right. Uh, and because that the empire has, you know, in New Brunswick terms grown so large, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to go back and, and revisit the story of this, you know, lone entrepreneur in, in KC who was, you know, building on, on family businesses that were already created, mm. uh, you know, in, in Bucktouche. Um, but, but KC was able to, you know, um, you know, through really hard work and, and, and entrepreneurial uh, gifts grow this thing into this huge empire that it is now that by New Brunswick standards that includes forestry, includes uh, oil, includes construction, includes real estate, um, that it was really interesting to see then I'll revisit the roots of this uh, empire. But because a lot of the books, the streets that have been, I've read, I've read all of them that have been written about this family are, are business books. Uh, but at the same time, they're also very political in nature, uh, you know, because, you know, the family, uh, it, it's, it's the, the family, it's a, it's a divisive topic in this province. So you have people that are really big boosters of, of the family and, and very supportive of what they've developed here. And, but then you also have people are, that are critics of, of, the, of the power that they've accumulated and in their views, too much power. Um, that the conversation always seems to revert to that. Uh, and with in Donald's book, he very deliberately chooses uh, to focus on the entrepreneurship side and and Casey building um, his large, mostly Irving oil, and then you know passing it on to to Arthur uh, and and the rest of his family um, to operate. And um, but it, it's interesting to revisit those entrepreneurial roots because this this was this was a guy who 
you know, faced all kinds of, of obstacles uh, to building business in Bakhtush and then building business in St. John and then slowly building into this, this global business and this regional business. And Sharice, it's interesting because one of the, the things about this is one of the main themes in, in this book and in my conversations with Donald is KC and, and, you know, and the, and the people who, and the Irvings who came after him, they don't see themselves as, um, you know, big players. They don't see themselves as Goliaths, right? right. Um, they see themselves as, as Davids. They see themselves as people trying to build, you know, globally relevant businesses out of New Brunswick. Um, so in the case of oil, uh, Irving Oil's not, you know, is, is, is really looking at large oil companies that are, that are global in scope and quite large and quite a bit larger than Irving Oil. So, and Donald, because of, you know, his, he actually has a, a personal connection to the family. He's uh, a friend of Arthur's and uh, a friend of Sandra's, and he's very upfront about this when he uh, writes this book and when he talks about this book that he really frames it very much from wanting New Brunswickers to understand, understand the kind of entrepreneurial genius at the heart of, of this family. And in particular at the, at, at the heart of Casey and, and his efforts to build Irving oil and then Arthur and, and Sarah kind of carrying on that, that legacy and continuing to try and grow the company. Um, and he's unapologetic about that. Like he, he, he really, really, that's the way he sees the family and it's the way he sees the other branches of the business as well. It's not just Irving oil. Uh, he sees, uh, you know, very important New Brunswick companies that need to be, um, need to be nurtured and supported, um, as they, they try to grow New Brunswick's economy by growing their own businesses. And so it's, you know, not to belabor that cause we need to get onto the conversation, but in this environment. And so when I started reading this book, Charisse, I appreciated that because I'm one of these guys. I've read all the books. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm steeped in, in the politics of the family. I've, you know, I've had a media outlet that that's competed with, with, uh, with Irving, uh, you know, media companies. And I've worked for them as, as somebody at the, you know, in Brunswick news and, and now here at huddle. Um, so I have that kind of like rounded long, long view of this. And uh, so it was kind of refreshing just to read this book that really just wanted to talk about Casey and Arthur as builders, uh, as entrepreneurs. Right. Well, this seems like it's going to be really interesting. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, listeners, uh, listeners think of it. So uh, why don't we get to it? Let's go to it. Good morning, Donald. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. And you? Great. And where do I find you this morning? On campus at the University of Moncton, in my office. And uh, how are how are things on campus right now? Are are people back in school there? Well, there are not many students. Uh, most of our students, virtually all of them, actually, uh, taking courses online. So it's a bit eerie to come on campus now, as opposed to years past, because there are hardly any students. Uh, the faculty, most of it, is here, uh, but um, but that's it. It's a different scenario. Right. And I think um, there's only a couple of campuses, I think, in, in the Maritimes that are actually, you know, fully open. Most are closed and, and doing things online. Mm -hmm. So so tell me, um, I know we're here to today to talk uh, mostly about the book you wrote about uh, Casey and, and Arthur and, and Irving Oil. But uh, because I have you here and it's just post-election, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on, on how you thought things went. Well... Uh, we could see it coming. 
uh, it, 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 uh, I predicted, <laughs> ironically, 27 seats a few weeks ago for the Conservatives. Um, we saw it coming for several reasons. One, there's a perception, and I think perception is real, that the, that the Premier handled COVID-19, or the government uh, handled COVID-19 very well. Um, I think the uh, Liberal leader had a very short window to, to, uh, to be known. He had no experience in retail politics. Uh, so it was quite a challenge for him to um, get into retail politics, to, to go around the province and explain who he was and, uh, and what he stood for. Uh, so if you factor all that in, I think it was pretty, one could have easily predicted, and many did, uh, that would be the outcome. Um, my concern, and I think it's, it's shared by a lot of New Brunswickers, I don't like this notion of dividing the province in two or two-thirds, one-third. Um, so I hope their wisdom will prevail uh, in Fredericton to say, well, we're managing all of the province. And so I wish them luck. On, on, that, on that point, um, do you see how, how can uh, the Conservative Party, uh, you know, because, because uh, Premier Higgs is going to be the Premier for the next four years at least, uh, what can he do to address that, that divide? Well, the same way that Richard Hadfield did. He reached out. Um, he reached out to Northern New Brunswick. He reached out to the Francophone community, and uh, he started to work with uh, entrepreneurs in the Francophone communities. He started to work with uh, community leaders. Um, and so it's what he'll need to do is the old-fashioned ways to reach out and uh, try to establish a process by which all of New Brunswickers can make a contribution. Right. It- because I know there's been some, you know, uh, controversy over the last couple of day, last couple of days, obviously, and and there was the the comment that he had made about, you know, uh, being able to, you know, run run a lampshade for the Liberals in the north and win. Um, what does that do to his chances and his opportunity to build those relationships? Oh, I think that's a twenty four hour wonder. I don't think there's any lasting impact with that comment uh, he's not he's hardly the, the first politician to make that observation it will not be the last i mean that applies in other regions of the province uh and so i i don't see any great damage there um it's just something that politicians say uh and and um, the uh, in my view the impact will not in 24 hours we will not be talking about it yeah, and I do know because I do. I, obviously, I'm from you know the St. John area, and uh, and in you know in in the St. John area because when I when he'd made that comment, and and there has been that discussion about the north. Um, you know, we're in that situation in southern New Brunswick right now, where you know from from uh, St. Stephen to to Sussex, for example, just at that little small segment of the province. Uh, it would have been very difficult in this election for anybody other than the conservatives to break through. There were some competitive ridings, but, uh, you know, in fairness to the North, um, it's very solidly conservative down here to right. And, and, uh, and very, very difficult for any other party to break through. Yeah. Comments like that really have little impact. I think over the next four years, reaching out to community leaders, to entrepreneurs, to grow the province. I think the focus has to be uh, on economic development. The focus has to be on local entrepreneurs. Um, And if the government reaches out and says, look, we need to build this province together, there's all kinds of opportunities. Uh, Let's pursue them. That will will matter. Uh, A flippant comment about you run a lamp trip somewhere, you're going to win. 
that that means nothing uh, over the longer term. Right. He, he'll still have that, uh, that opportunity to build those relationships. Absolutely. Uh, moving away from those those politics briefly, um, I'm curious to know your opinions about, so, you know, uh, Premier Higgs got his majority. Uh, there would have been a lot of, you know, business leaders in in, in the province and particularly in the, in the three main cities that wanted to see a majority uh, and have now got one. Um, to be able to try to move move ahead in a sing, sort of singular direction, if I can put it that way, uh, what are the the economic opportunities for the province with this new government going forward? Where should they go? Well, there's all kinds of opportunities, and let me let me start with one that to me is fairly obvious, and and the government ought to pursue it. Um, we have in this province a golden opportunity to grow the food sector and to grow the food sector in all regions of the province. You talk about blueberries in northern New Brunswick, you talk about potatoes in northwestern New Brunswick, you talk about the fishery on the, on the eastern coast, you talk about Cook uh, in Charlotte County and St. John. So we, we have a golden opportunity to grow the food sector. And if you, if you challenge New Brunswickers to grow the food sector, you can actually uh, involve all of New Brunswick, not just one region of New Brunswick. And and given the pandemic, given uh, that we will need food, uh, you know, going forward, I would urge the government to look at that sector, work with the federal government, and say, look, what can we do to grow that sector? And if we do it right, we will have every community in New Brunswick involved. And that, to me, is a one heck of an advantage. Uh, you know, there's one sector that I think offers opportunities, and we, and we ought to pursue it. Just as a quick, uh, um, you know, dive into your book, I, there was one section uh, where uh, you were talking about uh, an apple grower that you thought was a really good example of a food business that can be built in New Brunswick and an opportunity. Well, absolutely. There's a case in point. This 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 person this uh, this business person came from uh, came from British Columbia. He asked a couple, he, he grows apples. He grows apples in Chile, in the United States, in Europe. So he asked scientists, where's a good place to grow apple? And they identified three or four sites. One was Buktosh. And so why Buktosh? Well, there's four reasons. Uh, land is cheaper there because it's close to Northumberland Strait. It doesn't freeze. Uh, transportation is quite accessible because of Port of Halifax or the Port of St. John. And so he decided to grow apples in Buktosh. He will have a million apple trees. Now, an apple tree will last 50 years. He expects, and I think he will export, he's not for the domestic park, he expects to export $200 million a year worth of apple to Europe and the United States. Now, that that didn't exist five years ago. It exists today. That's apples. Now, again, you can you go through the whole of the province and there are opportunities in the food sector. Let's just identify them and pursue them. And when you wrote about that that company, and again, this is where our conversation, uh, you know, uh, inevitably moves into the book. You, you talked a lot about, uh, n- you know, needing to follow the private sector's lead on things, and and you had mentioned in 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 particular that with that apple grower, you know, that was a particular opportunity that uh, that entrepreneur um, spied, that that uh, you know, an, an army of of government uh, workers couldn't have. Um, because of that private sector eye for for development, um, you know, with this government, because you know we do tend to talk a lot about, you know, what can the government do to stimulate the economy, um, 
how how do we balance that with uh, you know with the private sector's role in, in in growing the economy? Well, I think the government needs a new mindset. I really do. I think I think government public servants are being left behind. There's no reason. There's no reason why some some career officials in the government of New Brunswick, in the Department of Economic Development and Opportunities New Brunswick, at the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agencies and the Department Departments of Agriculture, both federally and provincially, there's no reason why somebody couldn't have identified that. And so uh, I've, I've asked public servants, why didn't it come up? Why do we leave it to somebody from British Columbia with two scientists to flow into to fly into the province that identified this opportunity, have two hundred million dollars a year of exports, create jobs? Why? Who was asleep at the switch? And the answer, well, yeah, well, there used to be a unit that looked after that. It may be the responsibility of the Department of Agriculture or Agrowood. Nobody was clear. Those arguments only make sense to public servants. They make no sense to, to the private sector. And so another one said, well, um, we public servants cannot be, we, we cannot take risk. We can only manage risk. We can only support, but we can't, we can't identify or, or, or take risk. Well, if that's the case, then do we really need eight or 900 public servants looking after economic development in the province of New Brunswick? I think we need to question that. So the point I'm making is that either the either government officials grow a new mindset and learn to identify opportunities or just get out of the way and let the private sector do it. Now, in the case of, um, of, of the food businesses in the, in the province, um, uh, one more question for you around around politics before we move on on to the book is uh, I had conversations with all the party leaders uh, leading up to the election um, podcast conversations like this and all of them mentioned uh, food security and you know developing foods the food sector businesses in in the province um, and I know that um, you know uh, Chris Austin in particular and David Kuhn also, uh, would be disappointed that we are now uh, in a situation where there's majority government because they felt like uh, minority government was the best way to push the province forward and make sure uh, all voices uh, were heard uh, and listened to. Uh, is this is this the type of sector where there could be you know cross party uh, work on helping private companies develop this sector? I think they made the case for a minority government because it was uh, in their interest. When, when you have a minority government, it's clear that third parties have far more influence. When you have a majority government, it's clear that third parties have little influence. So I think they were making the case for their own self-interest. The, the, the food sector is there. There's opportunities, and I underline the point, in every region of the province. It's there to be taken. Let's pursue it. Let's, let's leave politics aside. This, is not, this ought not to be politics or partisan politics. Uh, the guy that planted a million apple trees uh, in Bukdosh couldn't, I suspect, couldn't care less about politics, and uh, and nor should he. Le- there are opportunities. Let's pursue them. This this ought not to be about partisan, you know, about, part- uh, about partisan politics. We should do this with a sense of urgency. Why? Because we need uh, we, we need growth. Uh, the economy post uh, you know post um, pandemic has got challenges. These are opportunities, uh, 
again, I underline the point once more. Uh, it, it involves all of New Brunswick. It involves apples in Bukdosh. It involves blueberries in northern New Brunswick, French fries, potatoes, cook agriculture. This, is, this to me, is what the, the younger crowd calls a no-brainer. Let's go after them. Are there other opportunities that you see, other other sectors that you see that could develop post-COVID? Sure. Uh, security, uh, I think Ferdicton, uh, there's a cluster. I think there's a lot of opportunities to be had there. Let's pursue them. Um, that's that's mostly located in Fredericton uh, and Moncton, I suspect, but that's okay. That, that's um, I don't think you can grow IT security in northern New Brunswick or in southern parts of New Brunswick. Let's go where our strengths are. Um, there's talk about nuclear power, having a new investment, a new round. We've been at we've been in that sector for years. I think the federal government, as it does more often than not, it uh, shortchanged the province in Brunswick in all kinds of ways. Uh, but I think there are some opportunities there, so let's pursue them. Um, I think the agenda for New Brunswick for the next 10 years ought to be economic growth. And on that, that note, I think that's a good point to turn to the book. Um, I found uh, you know, I, I, I found it fascinating to read the, the, the story of, of these builders, because you think of this as a family when, when you think of the story that you tell um, right from the beginning. Uh, of them settling in in Canada uh, and in New Brunswick, um, what what inspired you to write this book? Well, look, I I come, I've been around a long time on uh, this totem pole. Um, if you if you will recall, uh, nineteen eighty six, the prime minister, the then prime minister, called and asked if I would do a report on the establishment of the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. I had published a book on economic development. I I did the work. Uh, I submitted, you know, my report. The, the the agency was established in June of nineteen uh, a year after, um, and, and so I've been around the economic development game for a long, long time. I'm a deeply, deeply, deeply committed maritimer. Um, I'm a maritime nationalist, if you like. And so when I when I see a success story like Casey Irving, uh, Arthur Irving, and all the Irving boys actually, when I see what they've done, uh, pulling against gravity. Uh, because gravity is in Ontario and Quebec. It's not here. So they had to pull against gravity. They had to grow a business. And I, I figure, well, if we, if we can tell the story, uh, how how they did it, it may inspire entrepreneurs uh, throughout the maritime province to say, well, geez, if these, if these guys and gals could build a business that has a global reach, that's been in business for nearly 100 years, that's been a, a resounding success story, that has its head office in St. John, Maybe we can give it a go. So my purpose is to inspire kind of entrepreneurs and to make the point that if our region is to grow, it has to be through the entrepreneur. And one of the things that interests me interests me a lot about this story, and I, I know there have been a lot of books uh, written about the Irvings, but kind of reading this story fresh um, over the last couple of weeks, and I must say, Donald, I, I feel like I've actually been in conversation with you for you know for at least a week now, because <laughs> I've been kind of deeply immersed in, in your book. Um, I think it's worth getting you to tell us a little bit of the story around, because one of the remarkable things when you when you, when you read this story is watching the way that uh, you know business empires can be built over generations, and and I think of of um, you know now because we you know and and. It's, people have different opinions about this, both positive and negative. New Brunswickers and and you know Maritimers in general tend to see this you know very large, um, sprawling empire um, 
that that may be broken up amongst family members now, but is still you know seen by a lot of people as quote the Irvings. Um, looking back to you know George George's original settlement in in uh, in Rishabuktu, I, th- I think it was from your book. Uh, I think is instructive thinking about the way the family. Uh, grew the businesses from that very um, that point of having immigrated here and then slowly built it over generations. Can you take us back a little bit and talk a little bit about the evolution of of the business over over generations and and really a couple of centuries now? Well, yeah, I, I, it's a good question because what I wanted to answer as well was through this book: Are entrepreneurs born or made? Um, and so, and this this question has been debated for the past 50, 60 years in, in journals and so on. Are entrepreneurs born or made? In the case of the Irvings, they haven't been born. They haven't been made. I think they've been nurtured uh, because uh, the second generation of the Irvings that came to New Brunswick started a business that extremely well. Uh, the next generation. And which business was that? Who was that? It was in the lumber business. It was uh, uh, Herbert. Um and that would have been Casey's grandfather. Um, and so they started a sawmill. Uh, they started uh, growing the business. And the next generation, uh, JD, uh, grew it even more, um, expanded it. Then came Casey Irving. And so he saw his father uh, growing the business. Um, he learned from his father. There's no question that Casey Irving had an incredible talent an incredible ability to focus. Um, no question about that, uh, out of the ordinary. And so he, he was essentially nurtured by his father and so looked at, took over you know, uh, uh, the, the business and grew it and expanded it. Uh, he was kicked out of Boktosh essentially because he, was, uh, because he was too successful. Because the Ford dealer, he used to sell Ford and sell gas in Boktosh. Um, and the Ford dealer in Moncton uh, complained to Ford and said, look, you get this guy is stealing some of my business. He's coming over my territory, selling Fords in Shidiac and so on. So Ford said to Casey, you got you to gotta move Halifax to St. John. He moved to St. John. Um, and what's remarkable about Casey Irving was that the way, his ability to take on the big boys, his ability to take on uh, Imperial Oil, his ability to survive, to grow, to prosper, that's that's not given. He had to work at it. Uh, he had to be. He had a single-minded purpose. Uh, had tremendous energy, much like his son Arthur. And so that that I think there's a process. Not so much born or made, but being nurtured. And I think Arthur was nurtured by his father. He saw his father go at it, and so he drew lessons learned from it. Uh, and so that's that explains to me. The growth of Irving Gold generation after generation. And Casey wasn't even uh, necessarily fully embraced when he came to St. John either, was he? No, no. No, I think Casey had a deep felt attachment to Bookdosh um, when he and and had throughout his whole life. Uh, he loved Bookdosh, and <laughs> I can add that Bookdosh loved him. Um, uh, but when he went to uh, St. John, he was viewed as a country bumpkin, a hick from the backwoods of Kent County. Um, and, uh, but he, he went at it. Uh, and I think that not he, I discovered in, in working on this book, uh, there was a misconception in St. John that he had coined the phrase, the dogs barks and the caravan rolls on. It wasn't him that it was one of his staff, uh, but that, that told the story in many ways. And I used that saying, 
uh, they could bark away at him, but he just kept rolling on. Right. Yeah. And there was, uh, I think you talked about one particular, I think he owned a number of businesses, but also the, the newspapers at the time who had uh, made some reference to sending him back to Bucktouche. Yes. Well, it was the, the business titan of, you know, of his day. He, he was a Casey Irving. It was Robinson. It was a Casey Irving uh, of 100 years ago. Uh, and he said, well, this Irving boy, we're going to ship him back to Bucktouche. Uh, he, he lived in Mount Pleasant. He owned a telephone company. He owned an electricity uh, uh, company. He owned all kinds of businesses. And so, you know, 40 years later, Casey bought his house. And it's so still the one that's in, in uh, that they still own up in yep. Mount Pleasant. Yep. Right. That I think uh, that I think Arthur lives in now. Yes. Right. Um, and the part of the reason why I'm, I you know took the conversation this uh, in this direction initially is one of the things that that a couple of things really struck me about this book uh, as I started to read it, and, and I would say this to my my uh, my wife every night when I put it down is. Um, the, the focus on the family and in particular in those early chapters on those early family members, uh, you know, that included George, that included Herbert, that included uh, JD and then KC is the focus on actually what it takes to build a business, uh, both as an entrepreneur being inspired to do it, uh, but also just the process of, of building and the tenacity and the work ethic and the spying of opportunities and that that really struck me watching the family. You tell the story in that way. Um, and the other um, part that struck me uh, as well was, um, was the way in which you, we, the, the, the Irvings very much uh, perceive themselves. Underdog might not be the right word, uh, but they've always seen themselves as competing against larger players. And that, that, that can be hard in New Brunswick for a lot of New Brunswickers because we, do, we see them as, as kind of the big dogs, so to speak. Um, and, but, but the way in which they, you know, there was always that analogy of we start the, we start the hockey game down three, two in the three period, right? Um, the David and they did David and Goliath analogy. Um, they're the David. Um, and how do, how do you explain to New Brunswickers who might not understand that, um, why they see the world that way and, 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 and why you agree with them. And, and, and you see that they are in, in a sense in that competition with much larger players and have been for a long time. Well, I'm glad you raised that question. Uh, cause it goes to the, it's a key question that I tried to address in the book. Um, if you're sitting at Irving oil in St. John, uh, you look at the world and you think we're a small player. I mean, contrast them with uh, contrast Irving Oil head office in St. John, which I underline it's a tremendous advantage to St. John. But they look at Exxon, they look at BP, they look at Shell. They are a bit player. They're not a big player. They're not part of that that, that big gang of gang of three or four, and so they have to compete. It is a David and Goliath. They have to compete against the big boys. They have to compete against BP and Shell that have their own oil reserves that own. Uh, tremendous processing capacity that have a marketing uh, capacity that dwarfs uh, you know, the Irving marketing capacity. So they fight against the big boy. Now, if you're sitting in um, Saint-Quentin, New Brunswick, or Woodstock, and you have a convenience store, you look at the Irving, you say, boy, these are the big boys. So it's a question of contrast. It really is. The point I'm trying to make in the book is that we, and I know some people would challenge me on this, and I've been challenged, but we are very fortunate to have the Irvings uh, in New Brunswick. 
for all kinds of reasons, for having their head office uh, in New Brunswick. That matters. The importance of a head office to a regional economy is incredible, and I and I and I explain that in the book. When I've been involved with fundraising campaigns all, all over New Brunswick, Dan Cassidy Center in Fredericton, uh, University of Moncton Cancer Research Group, and every time I knock on doors, the Irvings open the door, the McCain's are, you know, open their door, and they make a contribution. I've yet to have a contribution from Exxon, from Shell, when it comes to New Brunswick causes. These and, and the one of the thing I one of the things that I discovered, literally discovered in writing this book, is the deeply felt commitment that Casey Irving had to the maritime provinces. It was incredible. He is as much, perhaps more, of a maritimer than I am, and I think I think I'm a deeply committed maritimer. So, viewed from viewed from St. John, viewed from the Irving Oil head office, you look at the world and say, "We're not big. We have to struggle. We have to fight every inch of the way. These big boys can come after us." Viewed from a small, um, if you're sitting in, in St. George, New Brunswick, and you look at the Irving, you say, these are the big boys. So it's a, it's a contrast. I tell you, I'd rather have the big boys in New Brunswick than not. And, and uh, uh, KC had also, in, in terms of demonstrating that kind of commitment to New Brunswick and, and St. John, uh, you know, he faced resistance from you know, his larger partners when he opened the refinery about siting it in St. John. Yes, yes. In fact, he broke off negotiations with BP because BP was going to be the partner. Uh, and towards the end of the, towards the end, uh, uh, because I think BP was going to own fifty-one percent of the refinery, KC forty-nine. Um, towards the end, BP said, "Well, uh, we've looked at it, and we think that you should build the refinery somewhere else. St. John doesn't make any sense for all kinds of reasons. Halifax may make more sense, or the Eastern Seaboard." We want to be your partner, but not in St. John. And Casey said, well, the deal is off. It's not going to go through. And then one of them said, why do you insist on St. John? And Casey looked at him very calmly and said, because I live there. That was the only reason that Casey needed or the only reason he gave, because I live there. His commitment to St. John in New Brunswick and the Maritimes is, is something that I wish New Brunswickers and Maritimers would appreciate a bit more. And now, sixty years later, because actually uh, this year is I think the sixtieth anniversary of uh, the refinery opening in in St. John. I think it was in in July officially. Um, it it now looks uh, you know not, not just uh, you know good in the sense that he lived here and and he wanted the refinery sited here for that reason, uh, but it makes a certain amount of sense now to have the refinery with the deep water port. It makes absolute sense. Whether Casey understood that in nineteen fifty eight fifty nine, I don't know. But what I do know is that it makes eminent sense to have in St. John because deep water poor, because 12 months of the year they can access it because they are not that far from the Boston market uh, and on and on. Yes, it makes sense now. It didn't necessarily make sense uh, 62 years ago. Uh, just backing the conversation up just, just a little bit. Um, uh, I know that early in the book you talk, uh, obviously, when you, you kind of uh, preface uh, the, you know, the discussion of the history and how the company's evolved, you talk about your relationships uh, with, uh, with the Irvings and Arthur in particular uh, and make that quite plain. You, you, you're, you're close to Arthur and you've known him for a long time now? Well, uh, I consider Arthur Irving a friend. I consider Sandra Irving a friend. I consider Sarah Irving a friend. I've known them for... 20 years or close to 20 years. 
uh, and I explain how it all began. Uh, yes, they're very good friends. I have a very high opinion of Arthur in his capacity. I have a very high opinion of Sandra and her willingness to give to New Brunswick. So yes, I make no apologies for it. In fact, I'm honored that I'm uh, one of their friends. Yeah, I saw the, uh, the, the um, when I was looking at the pictures in your book, I saw the picture of you with uh, Arthur in, in, uh, in Fenway <laughs> Park, and I was quite... Uh, quite jealous because <laughs> anytime I see pictures of other people in Fenway Park, I'm a huge Red Sox fan. Um, so you, I mean, you've taken trips with them like that. I, there was a picture of you with them in, in Scotland as well. Uh, so obviously, you know, you're, you're transparent about that. Um, does it impact the way you told the story at all? Like, were you, um, did you have a hard time removing yourself and seeing it, uh, coldly or, or do you think that that friendship actually, uh, better inform the way you wrote about them? Before I answer that question, may I congratulate you on being a Red Sox fan? This is a tough, <laughs> this is a tough year for uh, for us, but I've been a Red Sox fan since the age of eight, since I was eight years old. I'm deeply committed Red Sox fan. And yes, we've been to Fenway Park many times, Arthur, Sandra, and I, and Sarah, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Um, to your question, uh, no, and here's why. I uh, I set out to write this book and immediately I decided this is not going to be a gossipy book. This is not going to be about uh, family squabbles or whatever else. This book, and that's been my career actually, it's not about personalities. It's about business development. It's about economic development. It's about the maritime provinces. And I decided early on that would be it. And I say that uh, early in the book. This is about how a business success story was born and how it has grown. This book is about what it means to be a Maritimer, what it means for an entrepreneur to be a Maritimer, and the contributions that the Irvings have made to my province and to my region. I didn't get involved in anything else about personalities. Had I been, had I written a book about um, family feuds or personalities or whatever else, yeah, it would have colored my view, certainly, because I'm a friend of Arthur, I'm a friend of Sandra, very good, very good friends of them. But this was not about that. This book was about something else. It was about business development. And I tell you, um, people have asked me, how did uh, Arthur react to it? Well, Arthur is not one to, uh, uh, people who don't know him probably don't, uh, don't know, but he's not a pretentious guy. He's a very down-to-earth guy. I don't think he ever thought that he needed a book to tell his story. I think he said, look at the, look at the service station, look at my businesses if you want to see my story. So he was not not a big keener with the book. Sandra, I think, wanted to see a book written. Um, but he never tried to influence the content of the book. Um, I think there's a chapter in the book where I talk about challenges, where I talk about climate change, where I talk about uh, that the oil sector is uh, mostly older white men, that that has to change and so on. Uh, he didn't, uh, I think he was delighted to see at the start of the chapter where I say these views are my views alone. Uh, but he didn't try to say it, look, Donald, this is too close to the bone. You shouldn't write about this. Never, not once. And so if I, I stuck to what I wanted to do. I stuck to writing about a business story. I stuck to writing about economic development. I stuck to writing about the maritime provinces. I didn't get involved in anything else, so I don't think my friendship with them colored. The story is a detached business story. 
And it, it is a, why did you choose? And I know um, you would have complicated the book and made it a thousand words long. Um, but obviously, you know, you have um, the story, the story of, of Jack and, and the companies that he started to build and built. You have, um, you know, JK and, and, and the forestry side of the business and, and Jim and that side. And then you have, you know, Arthur and, and Sarah and, and, and Kenneth and Irving Oil. And, and that family. Um, um, why did you decide to go just the path of, of Casey and Arthur and Irving Oil? Was it, was it to be more focused? Did it, did it start from that um, point of, of friendship? How, how did that evolve? Or do we have a, two more books coming? <laughs> no, you don't, no, no, you don't have two more books. I have, a, I have a great deal of admiration for JK and JD. I know JD. Um, JK not as well, but I've known JD for a long time. I admire his business skills, no question about that. I would rank him as one of the best businessmen that New Brunswick has at the moment. Uh, but it wasn't about GDI; it was about Irving Oil, um, and and uh, Jack Irving was part of it. Uh, JK was part of it, cer- certainly in the early years. Um, so no, this this book was not about to take sides. It 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 avoided that deliberately, avoided that. And yes, there's an important book to be written about GDI, about uh, about uh, JD Irving and GDI, how how that business has grown. Um, but I'm not going to be the author. I I would hope that some of our business schools at some of our maritime universities would start to write about entrepreneurs, about our entrepreneurs, about the maritime economy. I would hope to see our Department of Economics get more involved with entrepreneurs. So there is an important book to be written about GDI. Uh, it's not going to be me. Yeah, that's 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 a whole other a whole other project that I that I wouldn't suggest that you need you need to get into. You've made you've made your contributions because I mean you've also written about the McCain's as well, right? You've also written about Harrison. Well, Harrison McCain, yeah, who was also a good friend, and Harrison McCain was a tremendous business leader, deeply committed maritimer, and I have to tell you. Um, that Harris McCain, Wallace McCain, a lot of, they went to the Casey Irving Business School because they worked for Casey Irving for, in the case of Harrison for five years, in the case of Wallace, I think a bit more. And so they learned their business skills at uh, by looking at what Casey did. So Casey has not only built a lot of businesses, he spawned a lot of entrepreneurs. So yeah, that's actually a good opportunity if you ask that question. Can you describe, from, you know, from your point of view, what is the, what is the, the Irving School? Um, because I know a lot of Irvings themselves decided to go to that Irving school. I think uh, Arthur had mentioned about learning more there than you know at places like Acadia. Well, the Irving school there's several there's several ingredients in the Irving school, and I tell this story: a uh, single-minded focus, which Harrison McCain had, which Arthur has. I think that was born with Casey Irving, single-minded purpose, and that's critical. Uh, they are focused; they are deeply focused on a task at hand. Uh, and deeply committed to get it done. I tell the story, uh, 10 years ago, I was in northern New Brunswick, stopped at a service station, at an Irving service station, to fill up the gas. And the phone, my cell phone rang, and I answered. It was Sandra. And I said, Sandra, she wanted, she wanted to, she was involved with the Royal Society of Canada, as I was, and she wanted to raise a question about the Royal Society of Canada. And and so I told her, geez, Sandra, it's ironic. I'm filling up a gas at the Irving service station. Within seconds, within seconds, Arthur was on the phone. Donald, Donald, thanks for the business, which he always says. Thanks for the business. Could you go inside and see the washroom is clean? 
Um, could you meet the manager? Good guy, good guy. So I went inside. The washroom was indeed clean. The manager, I met him, deeply, uh, you know, a real nice guy. Uh, and so, but that that told me something about Arthur. He is committed to the business. He is committed to uh, deeply focused. The other thing, the other ingredient about the Irving School is that the client matters, the customer matters. And I think that comes also comes from Casey Irving because he had to fight the big boys. He had to fight Irving. He had to fight uh, Exxon, BP, Shell, and so on, and said, well, the best way to beat them at their game is to provide better level of service, which he did. And so it's ingrained uh, in the Irving School of Management that you your customer is king, and you got to provide a better level of service than the next business. And if you stop at a big stop, you will see it. If you go to Kent Building Supply, uh, you know, which I do, you will see it. They do provide a better level of service. But that, those are the ingredients from the Irving School of Business. Um, they're straight shooters, um, and that, that too, you can see it. So there, there, is, there is a distinct school of business that belongs to the Irving. One of the things that um, and I raised this in, in con- a conversation I had uh, before the election with, uh, with, with Premier Higgs is uh, when I was reading uh, the the chapter of the book that describes how KC grew uh, grew Irving Oil and uh, and and the other other businesses uh, through the depression uh, and that kind of tenacity and kind of spying opportunities and pursuing opportunities, it I couldn't help and I know the analogies are you know isn't isn't perfect it isn't neat but it I couldn't help but think about what the lessons are there for New Brunswick companies that are trying to grow as we emerge from, you know, the COVID-19 crisis and, and the, the entrepreneurial lessons to learn from somebody like uh, Casey who had to, had to build companies and did build companies through the depression. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. I, I think there's another sort of important lesson learned that Casey is, is sharing with us is never put it in reverse. I don't think Casey had a reverse gear. Uh, keep at it. Uh, don't let up. Don't give up. Just go at it. Um, the other thing about Casey he was not terribly extravagant. It wasn't about uh, you know the profit that he made, and I don't think the Brunswickers appreciate this as much as they should. The profit that Casey made his business, he he reinvested it in his businesses. He looked to the long term. Uh, publicly traded companies tend to look to the next quarter. He did not. Uh, you didn't see Casey Irving parading around in a big yacht. Uh, you didn't see Casey Irving uh, flouting a big uh, houses uh, in Europe, around the world. No, his focus was on the businesses and whatever profit he made, what he decided that best to reinvest. Uh, and I think that too is an important lesson learned. You raised the point about them being private business and you do spend time in the book talking about you know, the benefits of being uh, a private business as opposed to being a publicly traded one. So what, what are some of the, you know, because and, and New Brunswick doesn't have a lot of experience with publicly traded companies. Or we don't have a lot, many of them based here. Uh, be the same be true in Nova Scotia. Uh, what were the strengths of being able to build uh, Irving Oil and, and, and some of the Irving uh, Empire businesses uh, by just being a private company? Well, here. Yeah, no, there's several advantages, and I point them out in the book. One is that you can reinvest profits much easier into, into the businesses. Publicly traded companies have shareholders, have quarterly reports, have have dividends to look after. Uh, 
the uh, privately held company, a family business, can look to the future, can can look five years down the road and not worry too much about it. Privately held company don't have to worry about um, if they if they make a they make a if they make a mistake. The shareholders and the media will be on to them. They make mistakes, they just barrel on. Uh, so there's a number of uh, of clear advantages. Um, R and D, it's easier if you're a privately held company. Uh, so there's a n- number of reasons why you're. It's easier to grow a business if it's privately held. Looking looking forward with with Irving Oil, because obviously in each evolutionary step of its development, uh, you know Casey, Arthur, um, you know other family members that were involved in the business had to address challenges uh, to keep the company growing. What are what are some of the main challenges they need to face now as 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 they're growing that company going forward? Well, uh, clearly, um, the world is moving away from fossil fuel. Uh, the process has begun. Um, I've asked I asked Arthur once about it. I said, "Do you think about that?" Every day we think about it. So they're on to this. Um, I. I stop for. I always buy my gas at Irving. I always buy my groceries at Sobeys. I always buy a hardware store at Kent. My hardware. I always, uh, if I can, it's local businesses. Uh, I make it a point. I wish more Maritimers, you know, would do the same. I stopped at an urban service station around Halifax not too long ago because I was down there on business, and I saw about I don't know fifteen Tesla charging stations. And so Irving Oil has brought has the franchise for Tesla charging stations throughout Atlantic Canada, so they know the future. They'll be there to they'll be there when uh, when, when the future arrives. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that when you stop to uh, charge up your uh, vehicle, uh, you're going to it's going to take 15, 20 minutes. So you're going to go inside a convenience store. You're going to buy a coffee. You're going to buy a newspaper, whatever. Uh, so they'll be there. So they they know what's coming and the, and they are making plans for it. And, and how about I mean? So they're operating a you know a large refinery uh, now own uh, also one uh, you know overseas in Ireland. Um, you know will soon own one in in, in Newfoundland. I'm not sure um, where where that transaction is because they are buying the Come By Chance refinery, right? Yes, I think that deal is done. I'm not sure, but I think that it's done. I think they're waiting for. My understanding, they're waiting for government regulation to agree, um, to give it a green light. And I think it's just a matter of days or weeks. So in terms of that refining business, uh, given where we're going uh, in terms of, you know, weaning ourselves in, in over decades off fossil fuels, uh, how, how do those res- refineries respond to that challenge? Have, how has Irving Oil responded to, you know, changing um, requirements in, in you, know, you know, clean fuels and well, two two or three things. First of all, we're talking about clean uh, clean fuels. Irving Oil uh, has made tremendous progress. It's at the leading edge, uh, but that started twenty thirty years ago. Uh, so they saw it coming. Full marks. Second, on refining capacity. Bear in mind that we haven't opened a new refinery in ages. We've shut down several. Uh, we shut we shut the one down in Halifax a few years ago. Uh, there was one a big refinery that was shut down around Philadelphia not too long ago. So we're shutting down a lot of refineries. We're not opening uh, any any new any new refineries, and we will need process uh, refined oil, gas, 
uh, kerosene for for a long, long time. And so, uh, as the capacity dwindles, uh, Irving Oil will be there, and will continue. Will continue to be able to to grow and develop those those assets for the foreseeable future. Absolutely, the way they've done it, and uh, I say that I you know I talk about that in the book. They invest in maintenance, maintaining those refineries far more than the competition. I mean, the reason Esso uh, uh, shut down uh, its refinery uh, in Halifax, they didn't keep up with maintenance, and it became dated. Well, the Irving Oil, its refineries will never be dated. They reinvest a lot of the profits to make sure that maintain it, it's maintained properly, uh, up to snuff. And so we will need a capacity for refined products in the years ahead. As refineries shut down, as they don't invest in maintenance in other refineries, Irving Oil will have its refineries. And how about, I mean, I know we've had this conversation again and again uh, in in this province and also out west. Uh, is there still the possibility in your mind that that we can, uh, that Energy East or, or another pipeline like that can be constructed here? And, and should we still pursue that? Well, in my view, we should have pursued it. In my view, that's another, it's like the Chignito Canal 100 years ago, uh, federal government policies, national policies, and people in Ontario and Quebec don't like to hear this, but I don't care. I'm going to keep saying it. The maritime provinces have been deeply, deeply shortchanged by the national government. The national government is really concerned about vote rich Ontario and Quebec. We've been marginalized since day one. Uh, and I've I've documented that in some of my books, uh, looking for bootstraps as one, where um, there's all kinds of examples, all kinds of examples where growth should have taken place in Atlantic Canada, but because of national policies and national government, it was moved to Ontario and Quebec. And so Energy East was killed. Uh, today, I think it's dead, but it was killed by politics, not by economics. Uh, and so that's that's the reality. Is it going to come back? I'm not hopeful. Um, I think they're finding ways to get the uh, uh, oil to St. John, through through boats, through uh, rail, and so on. It would have been much better for Alberta, much better for you know for the province uh, of Saskatchewan, much better for the maritime provinces, much better for Canada to have that pipeline. I mean, it makes no sense to me that we have to import by boat oil that comes from Saudi Arabia, uh, Venezuela. Whereas we could have safely uh, imported oil to St. John from our own our own reserves in Alberta, and why we did not do so because of politics um, that rankles me to no end. Right, and and uh, uh, in your in your view, a lost opportunity, much like the one when it, we failed to build that uh, Chignecto Canal, the canal that would have made made shipping easier um, way back a hundred yeah, years ago. Absolutely. I, I could I could give you a list of a, a growing list of examples where the maritime province was deliberately shortchanged. If you have a moment, I'll give you one. During the Second World War, they built ships for the war effort in Toronto. Should have been built in Halifax. The British Admiralty Office came came to Canada. The Americans came to Canada and told the military officers, uh, you know, in, in Ottawa, you really should build that capacity in Halifax. They said no, and it was, it was one case when geography favored us. Even then, it said no. The boats were built in Toronto. They barely escaped the winter ice up in the St. Lawrence Seaway. They had to stop in Halifax to get to, to get fixed and repaired, and so that they could they could carry on. Um, 
that's one example. Uh, I've documented many like that. So national policies have hurt us. And that's why I admire the pe people like Casey Irving, like Harrison McCain. They fought against against that. They fought against gravity. They built a tremendous business uh, you know, success story. And why do you think these guys, the McCains, the Irvings, and so on, are looking to expand their business in the eastern seaboard, in Europe, because they know that the, 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 that Ottawa has loaded the dice against us. Right. So they need to, as they would have had to a century ago, um, same now, had to look, look for opportunities elsewhere because of those political obstacles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, but it's interesting too, though, in the sense that I, I got to have this sense from reading, you know, the history around KC developing the companies, um, that they never let those obstacles stop them. No. Uh, and in fact, he fought them every inch of the way. Uh, it was his tenacity. Um, he, he understood, which is one of the things when I, researching this book, when I was doing research, he understood the implication that national policies had for uh, had for Atlantic Canada, had for the maritime provinces. He understood it clearly, you know, 15, 60 years ago. Um, and he understood that for him to succeed, he would have to pull against gravity. And that's what he did. He understood that national policies would never favor him. He understood that he had to fly solo. He didn't have the big advantage of being in southern Ontario or southern Quebec and say, well, national policies are here to help me. I know, obviously, and you address some of this in your book, um, a lot of the things that uh, the Irvings broadly face, a criticism they face, but, uh, you know, on an individual level, Casey and Arthur, uh, is, you know, the, the, the issues like uh, the environment and, 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 and the impact of the environment, the refinery and burning fossil fuels in the environment. Um, the controversial controversy over taxation and, you know, a lot of people that think that, you know, the Irving businesses and individuals don't pay enough tax. Like we have a lot of these debates that percolate here. Um, you know, they're too powerful. It's, it's a, another criticism that's commonly leveled. And in the recent election campaign, uh, you know, the NDP in particular made a, a big deal about that concentration of power and, you know, comparing it to, you know, in some sense, the, the comparisons to Silicon Valley and, and the growing strength of, of companies like Facebook and Amazon. And in some ways, the Irvings are, are that to people in, in New Brunswick. Um, the reason why I ask you that is, is uh, I mean, I've read all the Irving books I'm steeped in, in the conversations around the controversies uh, and the issues. Uh, but seeing that kind of like, uh, I'm going to tell this story from a builder's point of view and an entrepreneur's point of view and, 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 and show people, uh, that path to building a successful business. Um, you, you know, given, given the, uh, given that long preamble, uh, Donald, um, how, how do, how would you make the case for why people should take a look at the Irvings with fresh eyes? who might be more steeped in, in some of these more critical uh, dimensions? Like, how, how would you say, here's, here's the way you should look at them with fresh eyes? Well, I'm amazed at the uh, degree of criticism that's been directed at Irvings. I, I don't get it. Um, let me remind, you know, New Brunswickers, uh, just go to St. John. Just go look at the head offices of both Irving Oil and GDI. Look what it means for the, you know, for the local economy. If they weren't there, what would be there? I don't know. I don't have the answer. The NDP are making the case that the Irvings have too much power. In my view, they don't have enough. In my view, there's, there's small players 
in the global economy. In my view, they need support. Um, the Irvings don't pay taxes. I beg to differ. The Irvings do, and I get into that in the book. They do pay taxes. Um, there's a, there's a, I think it's I, partly it's envy, partly it's the Irvings not, uh, not seeing what they do for New Brunswick. I think they've hidden their light under a bushel far too often. Look at what the Irvings have given to UNB, to my university, to healthcare. They're always there when you knock on their door. Um, now, I wish, and I say that in the book, I wish they would be much more willing to share the good news of what they've done and what they've contributed. I think it would help them. That's not that's not their nature. It's not Casey's nature. They tend to be very private people. But on you know, if you add it all up, the contribution that the Irvings have made to New Brunswick is immense. If they weren't if they weren't there, what would be there? Nobody's been able to answer that question. I keep asking. If you push them aside, if they didn't exist, what would be there? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody does. And so the fact that they've grown businesses, the fact that they employed private sector people in the private sector, twenty thousand people. 20,000 sort of New Brunswickers. Who else would employ the 20,000 sort of New Brunswickers? We've, we've, we've tried for the past 40 years, and I know all about this. I remind, I remind you that I did the report in Establishment of Bacoa. I know the role of government, but I'll tell you, the better role, the way to grow the economy is through the entrepreneur. And, and that's what Casey Irving was. That's, what, that's who Arthur Irving is. That's who J.D. Irving is. And I think we should applaud their work. Right. And I know that, um, you know, in some ways, these conversations that we have here and I, you know, I think I'm guilty of this, too. Uh, you know, we do see things from a, a New Brunswick centered point of view, a Nova Scotia um, centered point of view. And I mean, a lot a lot of what you and I are talking about, these conversations are happening, as I said, in 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 Silicon Valley um, around around the big tech companies and, and, and their growing power. Um, but is it, but it, but it's it, that's been part why I found it interesting to go back to the beginning points of of the of the Irving story and and watch how it you know carefully uh, builds and grows over time from something quite small uh, into something you know large by New Brunswick standards for sure um, you know just through through these through these tenacious builders. Yes, look if you're looking for the Facebook. Um, parallel. Don't look to Irving Oil. Look to Exxon. Look to BP. Look to Shell. They're the Facebook of the business. They're the ones, they're the heavy hitters. They're the ones that control the market. They're the ones that are operating all over the world. The Irvings operate in Ireland, Eastern Seaboard, New Brunswick, the Maritimes, and Atlantic Canada, somewhat in Quebec. That's it. They're, They're not the Facebook of the industry. They are, in many ways, I don't think Arthur would be happy to hear this, but they are bit players. They're the small players. And so to say that the Irvings are too big, you really have to be uh, uh, sitting somewhere in New Brunswick, hiding from what is really happening in the global economy. The Irvings are not too big. We're, in my view, uh, we're fortunate to have them growing 20,000 private sector jobs in New Brunswick. I repeat, 20,000 private real jobs in New Brunswick. If they, if it, they weren't there, who would do it? Um, I, I really appreciate your time, so we won't keep it much longer. But it it, it makes me think of uh, how these companies grow, and and you've talked um, 
obviously you wrote a lot about uh, UKC and you wrote a lot about Arthur. Um, in terms of the of the future, uh, I know you've also gotten to know uh, Sarah uh, Assam as well. Um, how would you kind of assess her um, her involvement in the company and 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 that and his her role growing going forward? Sarah is a chip of the old block. She is very bright. I've known her since she was God, in grade six or seven. She's very bright. She's unpretentious like Arthur. Doesn't doesn't blow herself up. She is um, somewhat of a workaholic. She'll never stop working. Deeply committed. She understands the Maritimes, understands the business. You can ask her any question about the business. You'll get a sharp answer. I think she. I think she's a winner in the making. And what challenges? I mean, it's it's it, it, is she going to face uh, going forward? I mean, there's there you 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 write a lot about um, one of the challenges she's going to face. Then uh, you know the family's going to face as it grows. This this business is uh, talent attraction, right? They they have a lot of employees here in the province. They they have a head office. Um, uh, it, it, will that be another challenge going forward? Making sure that they're they're able to have the right people in place to keep growing this company in a in a small place like New Brunswick. Yeah, that's a challenge for all businesses in New Brunswick. That's not just Irving. That's a challenge for the McCain's. That's a challenge for uh, small businesses as well. Is to getting is to getting people to work, uh, to getting the right skills. That's going to be a challenge. It's not limited to New Brunswick. I think we see it in Ontario. We see it uh, getting the right skills committed. Um, I, I, I don't doubt for a moment, in fact, I know that Sarah Irving is well aware of the challenge. I also, uh, if you, the new head office is uh, an incredibly beautiful building where all of the, all of the right services to attract people. Uh, and so they know the challenge, uh, uh, the challenge is to make it work. Well, thanks very much, uh, Danald. I know I've asked a lot of you. You've been uh, great. You've been very generous with your time. Um, is, is there anything that I haven't raised uh, about this book that you'd like to talk about? Uh, other than the, the one thing that struck me in, in researching this book, and I underlined the point, and I didn't, I didn't think it was as deep as what I've seen, is the deeply felt commitment that Casey Irving, Arthur, J.D., uh, JK, the deeply, deeply felt commitment that these guys and Sarah now have to the maritime provinces. That was an eye opener for me. And I was, I have to tell you, I was delighted to see it because that's who I am. That's where I am. Uh, their commitment to our region is, is incredible. I wish people would know it a bit more. I wish the Irving would be a bit more forthcoming of what they've done for this region. But that is something that's a central theme of the book. Hmm. And I know too. Uh, you probably experienced this yourself um, in 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 Moncton and, and in other parts of the province. Um, it's a quality. It's funny enough that I notice in in a lot of people that that build businesses here. Uh, and I'm sure it's about people who you know live in different parts of the world. It's not just a New Brunswick thing. That um, the successful people I know here are very committed to building here, and then that that's from you know. Uh, the Irvings right down to, you know, small, somebody runs a small restaurant in St. John. Uh, one of the ingredients to success that I've noticed just as editor of Huddle in the last few years is the really successful ones really, really care about this place. Yep. I agree. Totally. I agree completely. Uh, the entrepreneur that uh, successful uh, invariably will, will have a deep attachment to his community or her community. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office, and that was my conversation with uh, Danal Savoie. And thank you, Danal. That was a, a great chat. Thank you very much for joining me. A Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can subscribe to Home Office if you haven't already on uh, most podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we will talk to you again next week.